to episode 16 of the Community Development Podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we crack on with our guest, first transatlantic guest. Podcast 15 was with somebody who I knew from the Old Community's First Programme in Wales, Becky Harford, based out in Rumney and east of, of Cardiff. Uh, she's one of the founding members and activists of the Benthig Library of Things. And she talks really kind of frankly and honestly about some of the the burdens almost that successful projects, community development projects can bring on volunteers. And it's a really frank and honest discussion from Becky. But certainly more positively as well, she talks about the success of that project. Benthig is the Welsh word for to borrow. And uh, they've been successful in some grants, but they're, they've coalesced, they've aligned with other community enterprises and ventures and just kind of grassroots activism. And it's a real great case study for how these very nascent, perhaps quite sort of um, independent, autonomous campaigns and projects at a, at a very grassroots level can find a strength in numbers, can coalesce, as I say. So that's that's up there. And before that was uh, podcast 14, where we looked at sort of like the rural and urban distinction of, of doing community development in, in a more urban and a more rural part of Wales. And there's a blog brand new this week, some quick thoughts and reflections on my part are on social prescribing. NHS England has announced that they're going to recruit an uh, quote-unquote army of link workers to help sort of facilitate and develop social prescribing, those non-clinical forms of prescription that can help people manage their health, improve their well-being, both physically and mentally and emotionally. That's not a new thing. I've had some contact with that previously in previous community development roles and just kind of pondered some reflections on on really how community development needs to be at the heart of that and we need to be challenging some of those more systemic structural issues around health inequality we can all do more to manage our own health and improve our own health and, and, and exercise more and eat better and, and all those sorts of things but there's we must not forget that there are very very systemic issues as well and in order to, to really fundamentally tackle those community development has to be at the heart of any social prescribing uh, framework i would argue uh, so that's up there, and uh, there's a couple of links to other other blogs that other people have written on the topic as well. So enough about what we've done. Let's get cracking on another episode with some content that I'm genuinely fascinated by, and I feel a little bit uninitiated, if I'm honest, about it. I've done a lot of reading. Moses, who I'll introduce in a moment, has sent me through a fascinating paper, sent me a couple of YouTube clips, a fascinating documentary about um, historically black colleges and universities in the United States. So, hello, Moses. Welcome to the podcast. Well, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, I'm currently a uh, PhD student at the State University of New York. My major is Community Research and Action. It's an interdisciplinary program, and my research focuses on historically black colleges and universities, which is a part of what we call minority-serving institutions here in the United States, and more broadly looking at university-community relations to enhance neighborhood revitalization. My background, I have a master's in community development planning. I'm a planner uh, by trade. I graduated from two historically black colleges and universities, one being Howard University uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., which has gone through some drastic um, changes in terms of neighborhood revitalization. And so I'm, I'm grateful for you giving me the opportunity to come and speak about historically black colleges and universities and why they are so important of neighborhood and community development in communities that are predominantly African-American. You sent me a paper that focuses on the need for a, a sort of an interdisciplinary approach and I'm, I'm conscious always with these sort of things that terminology is key. So you talk about neighborhood revitalization and 
the role of community development within that and not necessarily a term neighbourhood revitalisation that would be used hugely in the UK but I think I have a good idea in mind a good grasp of what that would mean but we're talking I guess sort of grassroots community activities people kind of self-organising being facilitated by maybe outside of interest community development workers maybe housing providers and the like different people working for aspects of the state to just improve things locally presumably Absolutely. There's 105 historically black colleges and universities in the United States, particularly in the southern part of the United States. And that is very important because these are southern states that after slavery in the United States, these institutions were founded to educate free slaves who were not able to have a fair and equal education in predominantly white institutions in the United States. And there's actually one historically black college and university in the U.S. Virgin Islands. You had ministers in the black community. You had former generals who fought in the Civil War. For example, General Oliver O. Howard, who founded Howard University. You also had philanthropic folks in the northeast of the United States who wanted to help make sure that free slaves had education. And these colleges became a way as for the African-American community to get their footing into society and to contribute the wonderful things that they have over the last uh, few decades. There's 300,000 students that are are enrolled in black colleges on an annual basis, 80% of which are black students, African-American students. This accounts for 10% of black college students throughout the United States. The total economic impact that these colleges have on their local and regional economies is $14.8 billion a year. 58,000 on-campus jobs and just 67,000 off-campus jobs. And now if we take that into context, over a span of lifetime, this accounts for $130 billion in earnings for graduates of historically black colleges and universities. This figure is from a report that was done by the United Negro College Fund and from the United States Department of Education. Now these figures are very important because when we think about community development and neighborhood revitalization, for example, in urban cities like D.C., where Howard University is located, where I went to school, which is one of the Ivy League black colleges, if you will, is going through a drastic change in terms of neighborhood revitalization, a lot of gentrification. And so what you have now is a situation where universities like Howard are having to make decisions about the financial problems that they're facing. And so they have to come up with alternative ways to generate revenue to survive. And one of the things that Howard did a few years ago was that they sold off some of their old buildings to big developers and then uh, turned those buildings into condominiums or apartments. And so what you had is a lot of students who could at once afford to live in the neighborhood around Howard They're having to travel further to find something cheaper, and that in itself, I think in the long run, could hurt a university like Howard uh, because there's no affordable housing around these colleges in urban cities like uh, Washington, D.C. 
and which could in turn impact if a student will decide if they're going to enroll into a school. And we always have to be alert to this process of gentrification. So one of the podcasts I did last year with Stephanie Gamow in Brixton, in London, you know, very, again, ethnically, linguistically, uh, faith diverse uh, communities in London. There's a co-working space and it's surrounded by sort of social housing and affordable housing and sort of the ethnic breakdown and the, and the representation locally within the co-working space did not reflect that population within its, within its environs. But of course, that co-working space is driving unit costs down for office and desk space, for freelancers, for self-employed people, you know, many of whom, you know, their take-home pay is below, you know, what we would have as a minimum or a living wage within the UK. So that co-working is empowering them, but it comes at a cost potentially to that wider environment because of the gentrification that then potentially happens. And what was fascinating was that Steffi and others, they were extremely alert to that. And at the very least were conscious that that was happening and could put things in place to, um, at best, you know, try to reverse it, but at, at the very least, could try to offset that and to and to come up with some sort of compromises and, and so on. And I think we have to be alert to that that impact, particularly I think, you know, any institution, whether it's the but it's public bodies, whether it's universities, education institutions, the moment they start playing almost like a property game, they get sucked into this very, very market-driven neoliberal orthodoxies around financial returns on property. And I won't, I won't pretend or claim to understand the intricacies of that, but I know the impact of it and I can see the impact and I can look around where I live and where I travel and see the impact of that. So that's potentially though quite harmful then. But what you've argued, Moses, with your research, that it doesn't just have a negative impact on the students within a current cohort. It potentially excludes younger students coming through in the future, but it also has an impact negatively on the institution itself. Absolutely. And, you know, this is where university community relations or pound gown relations come in to play and play a very pivotal role in making sure that when a university makes a decision about changes on the outside of the university or quite frankly major changes on the inside of the university that's going to have a direct impact on the community and the local economy it's important that they include the residents the stakeholders in the process. For example, Coppin State in Baltimore, Maryland, which is a historically black colleges and university, which has seen a drastic amount of changes in terms of neighborhood development, uh, uh, neighborhood revitalization, they included the community in the process and wanted them to be very involved in the process. And we see what happens, for example, Columbia University uh, in New York, which is an Ivy League, when they were expanding some of their footprint in the community, they did not include the stakeholders in the process, and you saw resentment there. And so that is why when universities make decisions, rather big or small, I think, based upon my research and, and, you know, sort of recommendations, is that there has to be a process some kind of blueprint or guideline where a university has to include residents in the process or stakeholders. For example, Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is an urban big city, which is a historically black college and university, 
they have gone through a tremendous amount of great transformation, and they included their residents in the process through what we call a community development corporation. And so this organization was very involved with the university and the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, to make sure that residents' concerns and opinions were included in any decision that the college and the city was going to make in terms of how the neighborhood would change. So we've got to make sure that colleges have uh, a standard that they're following to make sure that residents are part of the growth of the community because at the end of the day, you know, when these colleges were founded, they were founded in neighborhoods, what I have coined as black college host communities, where folks would migrate to because they wanted an education and there was a college there just so happened to be a historically black colleges and universities. And generations of families have stayed in those neighborhoods because the access to education and other opportunities. And I think what's fascinating, so you know, we will know from experience that those town and gown relations, neighborhood revitalization, community development processes, the actual kind of projects, what the, the boots on the ground are doing can be contested. It can be it's inherently about challenging inequalities of power or, or distribution of resource. But I think what's interesting, notwithstanding what you just said then, is that from the, the clip that you sent me from the, the documentary on YouTube, it's called Tell Them We Are Rising, Story of Black Colleges and Universities, which is a fascinating watch. Now, I haven't yet, but I will tweet out the link to it and, and attach it to this podcast. The existence of some of these colleges, maybe even all of them, the sheer existence was contested. So there's a, a, an astonishing reference to the establishment of, of these colleges seen as a threat to morals, threat to the local female population, a threat to tourists in the summer. And I guess it comes as a shock, but it almost doesn't come as a shock for those of us who will know about the, the, you know, the inequalities that come with you know, entrenched institutional you know, everyday racism. And there's another brilliant quote in that that I want to sort of squeeze in as well that's around slavery itself was clearly you know a brutal system but they talk about the speakers on the documentary about the brutality of ignorance and how knowledge and learning and reading was deliberately kept from slaves so the sheer existence of these colleges and I suppose then by extension the communities the black communities around them the host communities as you refer to them it's almost been contested right from right from the start and so I'm kind of interested what what brings about some of those more productive, if that's the right word, or the more effective, fairer perhaps, town and gown relations, those interactions between the institutions and the host communities. Is it people come in as a third party and facilitating and mediating? Is it the communities themselves nominating people forward? Is it the universities providing sort of workers in? I mean, I, I referred at the start to, you know, NHS England, National Health Service here talking about link workers to facilitate this social prescribing. Is it the institution themselves putting the boots on the ground to facilitate this process or, or, or what? You know, as you mentioned in the very well documented uh, documentary, Tell Them We're Rising, about the story of black colleges in the United States, and I'm hoping folks will get a chance to watch it. President uh, Lemoe of the United Negro College Fund stated that black colleges really defined what it meant to be black in America. And this goes back to your, your question about what can be done to make sure that these colleges have some sort of process that the have in place to make sure that there's positive town-gown relations. And, you know, as I mentioned, there's 
105 historically black colleges and universities in the United States, and that includes both public and private colleges and universities. So the public colleges are owned by the states, which are more often have better financial standing because of state-run institutions. Private colleges tend to have more problems financially because it's private and they have to raise money. And that is where you see a lot of the not-so-good positive university community relationships are with the private colleges and universities. And so I think for the private colleges and universities, what they can do is, number one, um, most of these private colleges that are in black uh, neighborhoods, there's not a whole lot of like community development corporations. You know, I mentioned earlier that Johnson C. Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina, has a community development corporation in their neighborhood that holds the university accountable. And so I think what residents and stakeholders can do in these neighborhoods that where private black colleges are, the forming of something like a community development corporation will certainly be an avenue to help alleviate some of this not so good university community relationship. A second step would be making sure that the local government are holding universities accountable to make sure that they have plans and practices in place for when they are going to expand their reach in the community to make sure that residents are being included in the process. And I think that would resonate a lot with what we talk about perhaps over here in terms of community development work or sort of community regeneration but perhaps would be the term more more widely used but I, I guess that's the the synonym of, of neighborhood revitalization and I think it's something that's actually quite undeveloped in the UK by and large um, certainly in Wales and you talk a lot about urban areas as well I'd be interested to see if there is some sort of rural urban distinction there seems to me to be a bit more of a sort of a critical mass within urban areas for these sorts of organizations to to set up whether they be something like a development trust that we would know here or, or, or other other forms of legal structure or entity it's a bit undeveloped and I've, I've talked previously about how with Communities First as a, a program that was funded by Welsh Government to the tune of about £40 million pound a year at its height over a 15 to 16 year period, one of the things that we really, really did not focus on anywhere near enough was the explicit setting up, development, nurturing of these sorts of, of organisations, these entities, corporations, you call them, you know, whatever the term is, but those locally accountable, independent of the state bodies that are you know made up of local people represent local interests yeah. and so on and like you said it's an absolutely critical thing that you've said there in terms of holding in this instance historically black college um, or university to account but I guess they can hold lots of other public and, and, and quasi-public bodies to account as well, of course. And, and we, we certainly missed a trick. That's not to say that they don't exist. Some did, but they didn't have a particular framework around them. And so I'm interested that you talk about standards, that there's almost almost like a framework then to refer to, to say, okay, this yeah. is what can be done that can prove to be effective, that can prove to put things on a more equal footing between colleges and host communities. Talking about colleges and universities, they do wonderful things in the neighborhood and in the communities where they're located. For example, when I was a student at Howard University, it was a requirement that I would do a certain amount of volunteer hours at the local Boys and Girls Club to tutor students. And so the, these colleges are very much engaged in the community in terms of giving back 
But I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when private colleges are in these financial strengths and they have to make major decisions about whether they're going to close their doors or stay open, and then this thing of, well, maybe we can get rid of this program or we can lay off this number of faculty and staff, or maybe we can sell this property to come up with, with revenue to save the school. So I, I don't think these colleges like Howard uh, intentionally do these things to hurt the neighborhood. I think most often these are decisions are made on the dire financial stress and that they want to save the college and sometimes uh, not recognizing the uh, consequences that it could have on the neighborhood is not at the forefront when making these decisions about mm. saving the college, which we certainly need historically black colleges and universities. So perhaps maybe before the colleges get to these places where they have to make these big decisions about whether to lay off staff or to close a college or to cut programs, maybe had the stakeholders been involved in the process all the way through, that may yield different results in terms of the decisions that are going to be made. And so having the stakeholders at the, the start of these negotiations, if you will, could have a better result and outcome for colleges and universities. You mentioned Coppin State in Baltimore earlier. Yes. And there's a reference in the paper here, I've got it in front of me, made it its mission to mitigate poverty and youth violence in the surrounding community. You know, that to me is a, you know, a serious thing. That's going to turn some young people's heads maybe from, from a life of crime or violence. It's going to make them feel safer. It's going to empower them to make more positive choices about their lives and, and relationships and so on. And I'm, I'm not for one second going to de- de- decry that. But what you're saying is that rather than just stop at encouraging students to you know, get involved locally, and you mentioned an the example there were boys and girls clubs, and to do it in some sort of benevolent way. What you're saying is actually it's, it's got to go beyond that and actually being much more engaged, much more rooted, much more connected with, with local communities actually potentially makes them make better decisions longer term and then avoid perhaps, oh. avoid some of those emergency crises type incidents and occasions and you touched on the fact that you know the financial crisis in 2008 you know has had difficulties and clearly that will some universities and colleges no matter how engaged they are and how keen they are to involve local people those external economic forces can sometimes be so disastrous there's little that they can do to withstand those and, and will have to adapt what you're saying is that all being well by involving people locally and genuinely and effectively that maybe better decision making happens just as a general rule yeah, absolutely. And Coppin State in, in West Baltimore is a perfect example. They understood and understand that Coppin State would not be there if it were not for the neighborhood. And so they know that making sure that the neighborhood around the college, if that is well, then the, na- then the college itself will be well. Yeah. And so it's kind of like it's a reversal from what from the literature that I've read and some of the projects that have gone on, not just with historically black colleges and universities, but colleges in general in the United States, where some people feel if they increase their standing or sort of their landscape in the neighborhood, that will make the college better 
and in return make the neighborhood better. And sometimes it's the opposite. When we expand opportunities in the neighborhood, not just physical building spaces, but creating jobs and creating those solid partnerships where the students are heavily involved in the community and the college recognizes the importance of a neighborhood that in itself could be the deciding factor if a college or a university decides to close. I picked out um, a page in your, or paragraph in your, um, in, in the paper you sent through and um, I mean, I chuckled when I read it, but in one respect, there's a danger. It's a bit of a, a bit of a cliche, but you cite a paper, I think, or some work or research by um, Gavazzi and Fox. I hope I've pronounced the first name right. And it, it echoes what you've, what you've said there about how the town and gown relationships are increasingly more critical as a means of survival for the colleges and universities, as well as those communities. And they use the metaphor of marriage to describe the relationship between yes. the school and the host community. And it, it sort of made me chuckle because there is a danger, it sounds cliche, but I guess it's a... It's a, it's a metaphor that most people, a lot of people are going to obviously recognize. It's a bit of give and take. There's a significant element of, of reciprocity in that relationship. And there's a good chance that if the school is thriving, the community can thrive. If the community is thriving, the school's going to benefit as, as well. Yes, that metaphor is certainly, it sums, sums it all up. Like until death do us apart, it's a give and take kind of thing. And in a marriage, you got to make sure that both spouses are doing well. And that is the same thing here with the university and uh, the communities, because if one is not doing well, then that's, that is going to drastically impact the outcomes of either the university or the community. And the opportunity to make the sum greater than the parts is, is clearly what we're always striving to, to do with this sort of work and these sort of approaches, really. I'm really grateful for your time, Moses. It's fascinating work. It resonated with me when you, when you first got in touch because I'd sat on a steering group of a, an engagement project, it was called, with Cardiff University here in Wales, with two communities, again, quite diverse communities, but very very similar challenges as well, certainly economically. One was a housing estate, a large housing estate in a town called Merthyr Tidville, high up in the South Wales Valleys in the former coalfield. It's a bit of a go-to, it's that poster boy almost for disadvantage within the South Wales Valleys. A degree of infamy and notoriety in this in this area, which isn't fair. And then another community then, very ethnically diverse, whereas that's very much largely sort of white and Welsh-born. Another community then in, in the Cardiff Docks area, traditionally, you know, the Tiger Bay area of Butte Town. And, and what that was trying to do, and it was called Stronger Communities, Healthier People, and what that was trying to do was try to co-produce research. Now, I don't know whether co-production is a term that you would necessarily be familiar with or whether it would resonate with you over there, Moses, but what they were trying to say over here was that when you look at it as a research agenda, so we're not talking about university estates and buildings and, and recruitment, we're just talking about the academics, the academics looking to maybe go in from a soci- sociology background or an anthropology background or a, mm. a health yes. background, public health going into communities traditionally have kind of poked and prodded around and asked questions. They leave and they might do that with a huge amount of, of dignity and respect and, and, and patience and again benevolently might get involved in other things locally. But they go back and they analyze that data and they process it into into papers and research findings etc. And those research findings go to a conference, they go to uh, uh, journals, they very rarely go back to the people who were being researched. I think there's a sort of a parallel there to a certain extent and I and I think what that, that project was trying to do was and it was a fascinating one to be involved in was to try to make that a little bit more equitable but what was fascinating was the research inquiries, the research questions that the academics had and the, the research students had 
weren't hugely different to what inquiries locally were either. And what they were actually doing was co-producing better research by going in and saying, well, what is it, local people, that you want to know? What is it that, that you don't understand? What is it that you would like to, to get to know better or, or get to change, perhaps, and, and develop a research agenda? So it's a much more holistic sort of process. And again, I think there's a parallel there, albeit with the research process, not just you know the whole kind of operation and scale of these large colleges and universities. That's about, let's not just do it for a very temporary part of the journey let's try to hardwire it in at the outset and let's try to keep um, keep people involved keep communities involved for as long and as much as we can and we're not always going to get it right clearly but at least if there's that intent then intuitively it feels like we're all going to be a bit better off though it might take a bit longer to make certain decisions it might be a contested process there might be some residents who are wagging their finger at you disappointed and and angry at maybe decisions that have been made but actually we're all better off for that longer term yeah absolutely and this idea of reciprocity is very very important i talked about in my research in the united states where we were facing the recession in 2008 you know i talk about researching this topic around black colleges may have warranted using one discipline but the use of multiple disciplines, interdisciplinary disciplines, and for my study I use higher education and community development and planning, because when you start to get into the thick of things and the research, you uncover things that you wouldn't have been able to uncover when using multiple disciplines. And so that is critically important, I think. The use of interdisciplinary research is critically important to getting at what is the root cause of the problem. And the idea of making sure that when you're working with a community and you're producing research, in some respects, this idea of reciprocity, in my mind, is also including them along the way, not just coming in and interviewing people and collecting data and then saying, oh, I, we, we have what we, what we need, but also helping them help you collect the data to interview people and then as well uh, uh, stay in contact with them when 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 your research is done and to really follow up or to help them come up with plans about what are the next steps i think that will resonate with a lot of people whether that's in a further or higher education setting or whether it's local authority planning, public health planning, and, 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 and so on. Moses, how can people stay in touch with you, with your work, should they wish to do so? You can follow me on Twitter at Moses S. Dixon, and I use that pretty regularly, and I'm happy to uh, answer any further questions, and it was awesome to be here. Thanks for allowing me to share the story of historically black colleges and universities to the UK. Hopefully in the near future, I'll get a chance to come visit you guys out in the UK. Well, that would be grand, and, uh, and certainly if, uh, if it was vice versa, if it was, uh, if it was us heading over there, that would, be, that would be terrific as well. Let's keep in touch. I'll certainly get the link to the documentary circulated widely. It deserves to be watched. It's a fascinating film. I haven't quite got to the end of it at the moment, I must confess, but I'm getting there. So Moses, thank you once again. We'll, we'll certainly keep in touch. Thanks for having me. The next podcast we've got is with David Smith from the University of Huddersfield up in Yorkshire in the north of England. man I heard speak at a sporting heritage conference about how he was working to preserve history, memories, traditions, heritage of rugby league in, um, in, in communities up there. 
And what was interesting was that he was talking about co-production and the co-production of the retention, the preservation of, of heritage, which I, I was fascinated to hear about. And so I tend to, I don't know whether Moses, you're the same when you hear terminologies get used, kind of interested as to what the, the definitions that people have in their own minds behind it, what the motivations for using those terms are. And certainly when he was using co-production in the sense of sort of museums and heritage, I was, you know, my ears sort of pricked up a little. So we've got that, and uh, I'm also looking forward to catching up with uh, Dr. Rob Watson, somebody who is an authority on things to do with community media, has talked a lot about the role of podcasts in giving communities a voice, but not just podcasts, it's radio stations, it's other forms of, of media as well. And um, he's coming to Cardiff at the start of April, so looking forward to him. He's become a good friend of this podcast, and I would certainly encourage people who have an interest in community media and, and very organic, autonomous media to give his decentered media podcast uh, a listen. And there's a couple of others bubbling under as well, so um, it's keeping me busy. But thank you once again, Moses. All the best with your research. Speak soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you.